Welcome to episode 16 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. My girlfriend Annie wanted to introduce me to her friend Greg, who I'd noticed at the merch tables of the punk and hardcore shows we attended. Annie assured me that Greg and I had the exact same taste in music. He likes the stuff you like, Annie said, a bit dismissively. What do you mean the stuff I like, I asked, a bit defensive. I liked a lot of things. I contained multitudes. Oh, you know, Annie said patronizingly. All that screamy boy shit. Annie was right about Greg and I getting along. We had an instant connection. Greg had a genius-level IQ and no small amount of self-regard. He was the singer in a locally famous power violence band, and he resembled a Mediterranean Jackson Brown. Greg and I found that we liked a lot of the same punk and hardcore bands. Ordination of Aaron and Indian Summer, Swing Kids, Antioch Arrow, Rorschach, Iconoclast... Through Greg and some others, I was becoming well-known in our little punk scene. I read the requisite texts. Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, John Robbins's Diet for a New America, D. Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. I started a zine and started attending as many shows as I could. And being part of a local music scene can make you feel like you're part of something very important but it can also be weirdly isolating and even a little oppressive. It can stunt your growth if you stay too long. I think about the Miranda Lambert song about how everybody dies famous in a small town. It's only years later, when you're much older, that you realize that your experiences in a punk scene are not especially unique when compared to other people's experiences in the punk scene. Sure, the names and venues and the bands differ, but have you ever watched two formerly estranged college roommates reminisce? The stories are usually the same. There's something comforting and unifying and even beautiful about this, but at the same time it is also deflating. Every scene has its local legends, its mythologies, its scandals. More on those scandals in a few minutes. The dark and ponderous music that would retrospectively be known as Screamo, nobody called it that then, held great appeal for me and Greg. It was music that allowed my imagination to wander and made me wonder about the mysterious Midwest where many of the new bands I liked were based. Distant places attached to post office boxes in Kalamazoo, Michigan, or Lincoln, Nebraska. The melancholy, artsy, and self-obsessed music these bands created tended to evoke these places, whose cornfields, farmland, open spaces, and wide skies seemed exotic from my vantage point of pavement, concrete, and steel. I imagined being a hardcore kid in one of those places, isolated, maybe vegan, maybe queer, Definitely different. I imagine that out there, you really had to earn it. When these bands visited Staten Island on tour, I didn't envy their being on stage as much as I did their piling into the van afterward, navigating by dome light to some prefab Motel 6, or hurriedly driving through the night to make the next gig, discussing and evaluating that evening's performance all the while. Now, in a few years, my life would become a Mobius strip of this exact scenario, and the novelty would wear off soon after. But at the time, I romanticized the sort of tribalism I imagined was contained within those hallowed econoline vans and sprinters. My favorite band was Born Against, whose music was smart, irreverent, and angry. It could also be really funny. Their songs about abortion, television, and cigarettes confirmed 
and in other cases even altered my views on those subjects. I would, decades later, befriend, just by chance while I was working at the great Steady Sounds record store in Richmond, Virginia, born against Adam Nathanson, and I initially had a little trouble playing it cool. My favorite fanzine was called Heart Attack. Heart Attack cost a paltry 25 cents and was packed full of interviews, reviews, and informative, smart, political op-eds. After scouring the review section for any and all singles that piqued my interest, I hurried to the post office to send my money order, and then waited by the mailbox for the inevitably personalized package to arrive. Ordering inexpensive records was like sending yourself a weekly birthday present. The editor of Heart Attack, Kent McClard, ran a label and a distro called Abolition, and I soon had the P.O. box memorized. Greg was the first good friend I had who owned his own car, and the two of us would regularly drive to Vintage Vinyl in New Jersey to buy records. We especially loved small hardcore labels like Bloodlink and Gravity, who released records with handmade artwork that often utilized recycled materials and makeshift printmaking techniques. Heroin's self-titled 1992 single was screen-printed on a brown paper lunch bag, folded to accommodate the 45 RPM record inside. A 1994 Mohinder 7-inch overlaid its text atop recycled print ads from glossy corporate magazines. Mine's over a perfume ad and it still kind of smells. Barcodes were verboten, and no two records looked exactly the same. These highly idiosyncratic works of art fostered in us an aesthetic appreciation for the homemade, the artisanal, the one-of-a-kind. It was also fun to fight over who got the best-looking copy of a record. You could usually tell which copies were made at the end of a print run, because over the course of assembling a few hundred records, inks would begin to lose their vibrancy, Stampers and graphics would show signs of degradation, and the folding and assembling process grew progressively more careless. Whenever possible, Greg and I would also travel to Middlesex Community College in New Jersey, famous punk squat ABC No Rio in Manhattan, or the PWAC in Lindenhurst, Long Island, to catch live performances of bands like Frail, Endeavor, and Millhouse. The mosh pits at these shows were on the whole far less violent than the ones I had witnessed at metal shows so I occasionally relaxed my inhibitions enough to join in the fun. Back then, until you saw a band perform live, you more often than not had no idea what the band members looked like, as most hardcore and emo records contained only poorly Xerox group photos, if they contained photos at all. Driving to the show, you'd speculate. Would they be straight-edge meathead types? Dreadlocked squatters? Fashionista emo kids with white belts and Spock haircuts? Some weird mix? These hardcore shows provided a nexus of potential friends and allies, and also doubled as a flea market. Greg and I would save up our money and visit the merch tables at these shows, befriending our favorite bands in the process as we purchased records from their own hands. Writing about hardcore in his great book, Mutations, The Many Strange Faces of Hardcore Punk, author and former born-against vocalist Sam McFeeters articulates the uniqueness of this community. Quote, not many people recognize the rarity of a self-generated, self-reliant network, which is probably a tribute to the power of the art form and its sprawling network of music and literature and ideas, end quote. Every once in a while, I could entice my old rapping partner, Paul, to accompany Greg and I to one of these shows. Paul got along with everyone in the scene and appreciated the energy and some of the politics of hardcore, but he was unable to connect to much of the actual music, nor to what he viewed was the scene's white boy homogeneity. 
By now, Paul was taking classes at New York's esteemed Institute of Audio Research and making beats on his newly purchased MPC. In a few short years, he'd be working alongside Company Flow's LP, later one half of the duo Run the Jewels, at a brand new label called Def Jux, where he would engineer and contribute to many of what would become some of the most foundational and influential underground rap records of the decade. We're still very close friends. Meanwhile, Annie and I were growing apart. She was now a bright and ambitious college freshman at NYU, living on her own for the first time, and spending her nights partying with the children of celebrities and jet-setting DJs with British accents. I was a high school dropout living on Staten Island, who had been recently fired from a fast food restaurant, and whose idea of fun was going to punk shows and listening to people with tattoos and pierced eyebrows argue about whether or not it was moral for vegans to eat honey. It all came to a head one fateful evening at NYU's Loeb Hall, where Annie lived with three other girls. I was friendly with all of Annie's sweet mates, and so we decided as a group that it would be a good idea to all take mushrooms together. As they say, yada yada yada, Annie and I broke up soon after. I started hanging out with a new girl named Janelle who was obsessed with Sylvia Plath and Mark Rothko, and was the first girl I ever invited over to my house who was more interested in my bookshelf than my stacks of records. Together, Janelle and I collaborated on a fanzine. One of the articles we devised had us going to the various fast food chains to learn, once and for all, what on their menus was vegan and what was not. We soon found ourselves interviewing the manager of Taco Bell, who assured us that Taco Bell did not use lard. Hmm, not even for the cinnamon sticks? I asked. I don't think so, said the manager. After we left, I revealed to Janelle that when I was employed at Taco Bell, it was one of my daily duties to scoop the lard into the fryer to make the cinnamon sticks. Janelle wanted our zine to expose this scandal, but I was embarrassed enough at having worked at Taco Bell in the first place, so I rejected this idea which forced Janelle to question my commitment to the revolution or whatever. Making zines was super fun, though. Some of my new fanzine pen pals had what was then known as a Kinko's scan, which required having a friend, usually a fellow punk or hardcore kid, on the inside, who would supply copy cards with limitless balances. I had an even better hookup. My mom was working for a title company and had regular access to a Xerox machine, which meant that I, too, had regular access to a Xerox machine. My mother was a great sport about helping me make copies of my zine. She even helped me staple them together, though I don't think she ever read them. A schism soon developed within our humble punk scene, birthing two factions. The Stobe House Punks and the Castleton Kids, named, respectively, for the streets on which the rented houses that served as bases of operation were located. This fissure was counterproductive and infantile, hinging as it did on the most trivial of ideological and aesthetic deviations. The Stobehouse boys were mostly straight-edge kids who wore baggy clothes and listened to chokehold. The Stobe girls attended pro-choice rallies and anti-fur demonstrations. The Castleton contingent was artsier, wore corduroy jeans and listened to drive like Jehu. The girls wore thrift store t-shirts and published scholarly fanzines about dumpster diving and Emma Goldman. The loyalties of the larger scene's participants were split between these rival groups, including those of lovers, siblings, and bandmates. Many local bands felt the need to play both sides, having ulterior, perhaps careerist motives for remaining nonpartisan. After all, there were only so many punk fans on Staten Island to go around. I soon moved from my parents' cramped house into the Castleton place, 
where my living quarters doubled as the communal living room and consisted of a mattress on the floor and two small shelves of closet space. My parents were largely supportive of this and even tacitly endorsed the move. My father, after all, is the man who would later teasingly and gleefully sing, It's the most wonderful time of the year, whenever he drove me back to school after Christmas break. Thanks, Dad. Being only 17, I was not permitted to appear on the lease of the Castleton house, and I paid no rent, but I was welcomed as a squatter into this small community that aspired to a kind of collectivist utopia. A handful of boarders came and went, among them Frank, who introduced me to the music of bands like the Dead Sea, Mission of Burma, and the Feelies, and Michael, with whom I started a band called The Friend Catcher, named for a song by the birthday party. The Friend Catcher was abysmal and unfortunately never made it beyond our Castleton Avenue living room. I don't even think there are any recordings. But I did find myself enjoying becoming reacquainted with the guitar after having mostly ignored it during the years I was busy honing my skills as an MC. Around this time, I applied to a handful of state colleges. I had some vague notion that I might like to become an English teacher or something, and I began to relish the idea of leaving Staten Island and embarking on a new adventure. Almost everyone in the Castleton house was vegan, even me, but even in this supportive environment, I was beginning to struggle. The trouble was I didn't especially enjoy eating vegetables, and so I was subsisting on refried beans, freeze-dried fruit snacks, and fructose-sweetened biscuits called frookies. The world of 1995 was not nearly as accommodating to vegans as it would later become, and finding things to eat was becoming increasingly strenuous. My mother, noticing on one of my recent visits that I was looking paler and thinner than usual, insisted on taking me to the doctor for a checkup. You can continue this diet if you want to, the doctor said upon examining me, but you'll have to start eating some more vegetables and protein, or you're going to become anemic. He said this right in front of my mom. This happened once before about five years earlier, after I had for the fourth time torn the same ligament skateboarding. Maybe skateboarding is not your sport, ha ha ha, the doctor said, again right in front of my mother, who would use this phrase to hector me into quitting skateboarding. After this recent diagnosis, my mom lectured me all the way back to Castleton Avenue, where upon my return, I promptly treated myself not to a delicious slice of pizza or a hamburger, but a mug of Swiss Miss hot chocolate. What are you doing? asked one of my roommates. Breaking edge, I said. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes and please tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Jimmy Jack Toth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Toad Zone. Now there are only two episodes left in the first season of this podcast. For the final episode next week, I'd like to answer some questions. So far, I only have four questions, and they're good questions, but there's only four of them. So please send questions on Twitter or Instagram or Bandcamp or on the Patreon page. On the next episode, I will tell you all about how I got caught shoplifting. Shoplifting what, you ask? If you don't know, you've been listening to the wrong podcast. See you soon. This is The Toast Zone. <laughs>